0: Left off, I was trying to impress upon us uh, my sense that the spendthrift lifestyle that has become so much the norm in American life today is something that we must, if we're not already there, we must be moved to seriously rethink. As the Bible repeatedly warns us, consumer debt and the manic pattern of, of acquisition and often discontentment that leads up to consumer debt, this kind of indebtedness doesn't just make poor financial sense. It actually robs us of the freedom and the joy that is what God wants for us and for those uh, we love in this world. Uh, I confessed to you in my comments last week how much ex- personal experience I'd had with The the pain and the pressure and the turmoil that gets created by financial indebtedness. It can be devastatingly hard on our emotional state, our mental state, our relational state as we try and deal with the intensity of the pressures that uh, financial woes create for us. And not only does that become a problem, but enslaved to our our creditors, we very rarely have the, the margin or the capacity to actually do the savings work we need to in order to live within an unpredictable world in order to be ready to face uh, the inevitable storms, the uh, sudden catastrophes that can strike us. We need to have uh, gotten enough out of debt so that we can be saving and be ready for those particular moments. Obviously, just as we need to be prayerful and careful as stewards when it comes to the subject of our spending, we also need to be very thoughtful when it comes to the subject of our savings. And I want to think a little bit about how we're going to do that today as we reflect God's word. Jesus tells this this wonderful story in Luke chapter 12. You'll find it at verse 16 and it really bears on this subject. So listen as I as I read it. A certain rich man's ground produced a good crop, Jesus says. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Now up to this particular point in the parable, this man who's at the center of this story appears to be extremely wise through some combination of hard work or intelligence or blessed fortune. This is a man who's reached a state in life that a lot of us would like to get to. (laughs) He's at a place in life where he is losing no sleep over his creditors, over his indebtedness. Uh, This man has got no anxiety at all about what he will do if the creek suddenly rises. He's going to be ready to handle it based on his savings. And see, and that, instead, the, the biggest question in this man's life at this moment is where am I actually going to put all of these re- resources that I've, I've managed to accrue and save up? And he says, I know, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to build a bigger barn to house all of this hay. Then I'm going to be able to put my feet up. I'm going to sit on the porch swing. I'm going to pop a cork. I'm going to enjoy the munchies. I'm going to look out at this wonderful life I've built for myself. And I'm going to say, now, man, this is really living. This is really living. In many ways, this is the vision of success that is regularly peddled to us in our world. Isn't it? I mean, you watch the financial planning commercials. You read the, the, you see the pictures in the magazines of, uh, from one of the, the important financial planning agencies, and they're picturing somebody, in effect, doing what this man is now doing, eating, drinking, and being merry. This is, this is the goal uh, of, of life in so many ways. Uh, it's an apparently good goal. In fact, in many ways, it is a good goal, except for one minor issue that Jesus goes on to point out in a very uh, sharp way here. But God said to the rich man, says Jesus, you fool, you fool. And biblically speaking, that term you fool, fool, is somebody who is living out of step with reality. That's what a biblical fool is. Somebody who is, they may be intelligent, but they're living out of step with ultimate reality. You fool, this very night, your life will be demanded from you. And then who will get what you've prepared for yourself. Nestled amidst the rolling hills of Los Angeles, there is a cemetery called Forest Lawn. You might want to put it on your next tourist plan. Uh, because if you go there, you will be absolutely entertained by the lavish graves and the crypts that you'll find there. You'll have no trouble understanding at all why the locals call it Disneyland for the dead. One particularly enterprising resident had himself arranged to be buried sitting upright in his Cadillac. They lowered the whole Cadillac into the hole. He was sitting upright in it. They glued a cigar in his mouth. And I'm told that a a groundskeeper nearby watching this whole thing take place was said to have remarked, Man, now that's really living. It really is interesting, isn't it, how people define what it means to be really living. Uh, You know, some people today still believe that, you know, the goal of really living is to die with the most toys. He who dies with the most toys wins, right? And there are other people who think, no, it's not so much about dying of the most toys, it's about building the bigger barn to house all the toys and enjoying having other people, the barn watchers, I call them, admire you. For having such a glorious uh, barn. And uh, ultimately, while that may seem like an extreme, a lot of us get caught up in this bigger barn mentality, uh, in this better burial mentality. Uh, but according to the Bible, this is not really living. Uh, maybe a piece of it, maybe an approach to it, but it's not life with a capital L. The primary reason to manage money well, the Bible teaches, is so that we'll actually get into a position where where we'll be able to enjoy the living that comes from giving. That's the real purpose of being a great money manager. It's not so that you just won't lose the anxieties and worries. Oh, that's a part of it. God cares for our well-being. But he cares for our well-being so much, he wants us to be in that place that he lives in all the time. Of being a person so resourceful that he's able to give himself away. And to know the surpassing joy, the true living that comes from giving. I love the way that the great author John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, puts it. There was a man, some call him mad, the more he gave, the more he had. And we know this to be true. In our clearest moments, we know that the most exciting thing of all is not holding it, clenching it. It's giving it away. I can look around and see faces of people I know in this room who have been models of this. And it's evident that as they share their resources the way they do, they they do it in a sense of joy. It is not an obligation to them. They see it as an opportunity. In his reflection on, on the teaching of Jesus, the Apostle Paul actually goes the length of saying this, and I quote him, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Remember that phrase. And then he says, command them to do good. Command them to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. Why? So that they may take hold of the life that is truly life, that is really living. Now, did you catch the interesting twist there? Paul says that God richly provides everything for our enjoyment. How different is that of vision from what we sometimes hear about God? You know, some people people picture God as this celestial Scrooge. You know, he's just holding it all in. You know, he's the Grinch. God's the Grinch. He doesn't want people to be having too good a time. This is not the God that we meet in Jesus Christ or encounter in the scriptures. He's a generous God. He's a he's a God that loves to bless his his kids. Uh, the God the Bible describes is the father of great banquets. Remember how we studied that in the parable parable of the prodigal son. He's the one who, who delights in putting on his children the very best robe and, the, and, and good sandals and a, and a beautiful ring. In no way does God ever in the Bible glorify or romanticize material poverty. In fact, just the opposite. God is always calling his children to be involved in the, in the war against material poverty, to be seeking to bring people out of poverty. But neither does God glorify the other end of it. Neither does God glorify thoughtless prosperity. And that is the twist in the story here. This lavishly generous God who provides us with everything for our enjoyment commands us. He commands us to be like him. And like most of the commands of of God, these commands are for our blessing. In fact, I'd suggest all of them. The command to love one another being the supreme one it's for our blessing god commands us to share our money and possessions not just to hoard them god commands us to be rich in good deeds and to define our wealth in terms of our capacity to do good deeds god commands us to be generous like he is and because he knows how influential the money god is Because God understands how powerful and pervasive is this culture that says my wealth and my well-being is defined by what I control, what I can hold on to, what I can guard. Because he understands this, God has to command us to be givers. And it's an irony. Because anybody that's ever wandered into the generous lifestyle never wants to go back. Honestly. The person that's, that's wandered into the generous way of living is a person that knows this is living. This is true. Giving is truly the way of living. It's not an obligation. It's an opportunity. And it is only, I think, that when we become givers like God that we discover the life that's truly life, the life of love that never dies. Everything else is going to burn away at the end. Everything else is going to get buried. Everything else will be lost except the love that we have strewn about this world in various ways. And so if, like the rich man in the parable, you die tonight, you die tonight without having established a pattern of giving, without having established a plan for giving, I'm quoting Jesus here, then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Who will get it? If I die tonight, who's going to get it? Answer. The government, the grave, the rust, or the recycler is going to get what I've prepared for myself if I haven't prepared better, if I haven't established a better pattern and plan. So that's why I want to get very practical with you today about the subject of giving, if you permit me to. And I... and I. Um, I want to get as personal as I did last week, Uh, you know, as confessional as I was last week and hopefully offer some help here. I want you to, to think that maybe, just imagine that you and I have gotten ourselves to the point where we actually have material resources that do not belong to a credit agency. Some of us are there already. But we're at this place. We've gotten enough control of our spending patterns and of our saving patterns that we now have a greater capacity to invest in something beyond the emergency fund and uh, getting out of debt. Uh, And this is not a wild supposition that we could get to that particular place if we're not already there. And I'll tell you why. Here's some interesting statistics. While annual contributions to charities have declined 50% over the last 20 years, in the last 20 years cont- uh, charitable giving has dropped by 50% during that same period of time household income has more than tripled in america we comprise 2.5% 2.5% of the world's population we own 40% of its wealth we spend over $40 billion on pets. I've got one. I plead guilty. If Christmas is in trouble. She's going to get my attention. You know, $40 billion goes to our pets. We spend over $60 billion on weight loss products. Between now and 2017, the baby boom generation of which I'm a part will pass along trillion to somebody. We're concerned about the national debt appropriately. It is chicken feed compared to the resources we just in the baby boomer generation have in our hands to pass along to somebody. $17 trillion. Now, just suppose that someplace along in there, we're going to have the capacity to give something away to other people. Here's the question. Who gets it? Who gets it? What what should we give our money to? What should we spend our money on? Well, if you take the Bible as your rule, then you will make priority investments, along with the other places you may be spending, you will make priority investments in three categories of people. In what order and what proportion you ought to invest in each of these categories, I am not going to try and tell you. I shouldn't. It would be presumptuous of me to try and tell you. Because it depends on what sense of urgency, what sense of importance God lays upon your heart concerning each one of these particular categories we're going to talk about. But if you're a follower of Jesus, and therefore somebody who takes what the Scriptures say quite seriously, then you will be investing, you will be giving at a high priority level to to these three categories. And here they are. The first is going to surprise you. You are commanded to give to your family. You are called to invest in your family. In all money matters, our decisions have to be prayerful and careful, and this is no exception. I am not called to give to my family all that they wish and want for. Okay? We have a GameCube, we have an Xbox, and we have a Wii. Does not mean we have to have a PlayStation 3. Okay? And it's not just the kids. We adults, you know, we, we get to a point where we just... We've got great imaginations, and we can imagine there's lots more that we could have, and we could. If we've done our homework on the debts and the savings size, it leaves something else to, 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 to spend. We could spend it there. We're not called to give to everything that we wish or want for. But I am certainly called as a father and Amy as a mom to, to try and give our family members, not just uh, in our house, what they need. Howard Dayton writes this. In our culture, we're experiencing a tragic breakdown in this area of sharing. Husbands have failed to provide for their wives or for the mother of their children, the deadbeat dad phenomenon, we call it. Parents have neglected their children. They they have neglected or grown sons and daughters have often forsaken their elderly parents. And I might suggest that even sometimes there's capacity in one branch of the family to help another branch of the family. And we don't. And we don't. Such neglect, writes Dayton, is solemnly condemned in the scriptures. The Apostle Paul says, and I quote, that if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. If we're not paying attention to trying to provide for our family and make one of the most significant investment priorities for us, caring for that family, the extended family, then we're denying the faith. Our families are our first church. Okay? They're the first place where the kingdom of God, his reign and rule, is meant to become manifest. And God's desire is to bless and to encourage and to strengthen his family. Uh, So, I hope that each of us is thinking about how our financial giving is is resourcing, providing for our various family members. The second area of giving for Christians is very closely related to the first one. If I am a follower of Jesus, then I'm going to make it a priority to invest, to give to faith-based ministries. Why? Why? Well, for several reasons. How many of you get appeals for money from any place? (laughs) How many of you are just too tired from the appeals to raise your hand? We get them all the time. I mean, it's just every day, more and more of them coming in the mail, through the internet, appeal, appeal, appeal. And these are so many of these are great, great worthy causes, right? And so we give in our family, Amy and I give to a variety of these concerns. We give to our undergraduate colleges. We give to American veterans. We give to autism and breast cancer research. We give to a whole variety of very worthy causes. But we give considerably more to Christian ministries and to the local church than we give to those other causes. Uh, we we invest probably seventy five percent of our giving in Christian ministries in the local church versus the 25% that go out to these other very worthy causes. Why is that? Why do we do that? Uh, For two reasons. The first, very, very personal. It's because missionaries, church workers, uh, Christian agencies and institutions are our extended family. We are going to spend eternity with these people we are more closely related to them than we are to the members of these other worthy organizations. And so personally speaking, we consider it important to invest there. And we also know that these, other, uh, these churches, these agencies, these ministries have a much more limited number of cousins to help them than the United Way does, as great an organization as that is or the other worthy organizations out there. The second reason that we invest with that kind of priority is very, very practical. It's the exact same mentality with which my wife invests more money in planting seeds and bulbs in the garden than she does in buying uh, cut flowers for the, for the table. It's the exact same mentality. It's because she knows that if she invests in the garden, she's going to have enough flowers over time, that she won't have to invest so much in cut flowers uh, as she might otherwise do. And and in a very real sense, if you think about it, churches and Christian ministries are the seedbed out of which grows so much of the charitable work of our world. Both of the universities we went to were founded by Christian workers. Uh, Both of the hospitals where our children were born were founded and are still being run by Christian ministries. The uh, nation that we live in grew out of the Christian church and missionary movement. And so it feels so much more strategic from a practical standpoint to invest a larger portion of our giving in Christian causes because we know that if we invest strongly there, it's going to end up seeding leaders and vision and resources in all kinds of fields. You know? Even the United Way will be blessed by the investment we make in the local church. Without strong Christian churches and ministries, however, we know that our kids are going to be living in a cut flower culture. Right? A cut flower culture. Eventually, over time, these, the, the, this, this rich seedbed that has been the Christian vision of life will, will begin to, to go away. And, and all of the agencies and organizations and fabric of society that depend on the richness of this underlying soil will be lost. It'll just be cut flowers. So this is a major reason why we invest, as we do, in faith-based ministries. What is the priority that Christian ministries are getting in your giving? Now, are you thinking about that? I can't tell you precisely how to think about it, but think about that. So we invest, or we're called to give to our family, to faith-based ministries, and then thirdly, the final category of people the Bible strongly and consistently commends for our investment are those who will perish without our commitment. We are to give to the poor. Another major theme of the scriptures. Jesus calls us to give to the poor. Again and again, the Bible makes it clear that God has a very special heart for the poor, for those who need a generous grace from others if they're going to make it at all in this life. Jesus, in fact, so identifies with the poor that he says that the way we treat them is the way it feels like we're treating him. That's how closely he identifies with the poor. And so every time you invest in a food or a clothing drive someplace, every time you you give to the mission fund of your church or to Spirit Village, an alternative Christmas market, Uh, every time you you sponsor a child in the developing world or you do something else that's sort of outside of the vision of even this institution, every time you're investing in these ways, you're fulfilling the call of Jesus to be what? A steward. A wise steward of the gifts that he has given to you. You're, You're acting in a way that matters very much to his heart. In fact, the Bible actually says, and I quote, that he who gives to the poor will lack nothing. But he who closes his eyes to them receives many curses. The Bible teaches that God's provision of further resources often hinges on what kind of stewards we are being. And specifically here, the stewardship we exercise towards the poor, the needy. You know, in the late first century A.D., the Christians in the city of Jerusalem were struggling under a terrible persecution. They were being ostracized, they were being arrested, they were being tortured and even killed for their faith. And learning about this, the Apostle Paul, who was not living in Jerusalem, uh, sent out an all-points bulletin to the Christian church all around the empire, saying to them, this is what's going on back there, and is there anything you can do to give to help these folks. The believers in Jerusalem met all three targets for giving, if you think about it. They were the extended family of other believers. They were the original Christian church. They were the original Christian ministry, in that sense. Then they were, thirdly, undeniably poor at this particular time in history. So the appeal letter went out, and it came to the church at Corinth, which was, relatively speaking, one of the most capable of the churches in the entire empire at that time. It had more educated people, more people of means, more uh, creative, industrious kinds of people than the average church. And Paul writes to them these words, just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. In other words, you are such great stewards... Of every other gift you have. I mean, look at you. Look how put together you are. Look how educated you are. Look what beautiful children you're raising. Look how marvelous your, your households are, uh, and your businesses and all, all. Look how well it's being run. You have excelled. He's complimenting them. As I'm complimenting you. It's, this is not blowing smoke at you, right? This is the truth. You have excelled. Now, see also that you excel in this grace of giving. This is what I hear God saying to me. Dan, don't just rejoice in the way you've been able to be an excellent steward of these other gifts I've given you. See also that you excel in this grace of giving. And then Paul tacks on this extraordinary tidbit, this this little historical footnote. He tells them about the church, in the, Chris, in the Christian community, that is setting the pace in addressing the needs back in Jerusalem, he says, "I want you to know about the church that's sort of a banner carrier in terms of making a difference." And you can see the Corinthian folks saying, "Okay," and they're expecting they're going to, and, and they're beginning to get a little competitive because they're imagining it's the Roman church that he's going to tell them about. And Those Romans, they're always, you know, they're in the capital city, they're, you know, they're always trying to beat out everybody else. Or maybe they'll be talking about the Ephesian churches because the Ephesus was a prosperous place and maybe those folks would be leading the way. But then Paul goes on to say, no, it's a group of Christians up in Macedonia who themselves are dirt poor and under extreme duress themselves. It's the Macedonians that are doing the most for the folks in Jerusalem. And this is what Paul says. I want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. You hear that? He didn't say, I want you to to know about the guilt that has forced the Macedonian churches to act. He said, I want you to know about the grace that's moving through the Macedonian churches. Because out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. And then, this is the part that really blows me away, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. Golly, I want to get to that place in my life. I do. I'm not there yet. I'm going to be bold about that confession too. But I want to get to the place where my heart is pleading for the opportunity to be an even better giver than I am today. What if we were like this? What if this was a congregation? What if all churches, what if the Christian community across America was filled with this kind of a passion to be as generous as God is? What if our hearts were so moved by the needs of our family, by the needs of Christian ministries, by the needs of the poor? What if we were so determined that we were not going to miss out on the overflowing joy that comes from the lifestyle of giving, that we were going to exercise this rich generosity. We were no longer going to build bigger and bigger barns to hold all our stuff, but we were going to manage manage our money in a way that would expressly free up resources to be used in these creative ways. What if we actually pleaded for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints? What would you say about that? What would your your neighbors say about that if they knew you were doing it? All I know is what the man who stands closest to that grave in which you and I will one day be buried, all I know is what he says. As he looks at your heart as it moves in that direction, He says to himself, man, now that's really living.